It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios. Welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. You and you still like me or you or you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. <laughs> I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth in America wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. That's the sounds of Cuba, Havana, people marching in the streets, uh, calling for liberté, carrying American uh, flags and asking for freedom. After all of these years, they know what's coming. Uh, They know about their brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts and grandparents who've been arrested and killed and disappeared because they objected to the Castro regime and his brother and now the heir apparent. Uh, They know what that means, and yet they're willing to be out there in the streets marching. There is no communist country entity closer to the United States than Cuba. And yet, American celebrities, American news people, American politicians, people that serve us in the White House, think that Castro and his legacy is something to be praised, his T-shirts to be worn. In fact, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is the founder of the 1619 Project, pushed by the New York Times, had this to say about Cuba. If you want to see the most equal uh multiracial, it's not a democracy, (laughs) most equal multiracial country in our hemisphere, it would be Cuba. Cuba has the least inequality between black and white people of uh, any place really in the hemisphere that's, uh, I mean, the Caribbean, most of the Caribbean, it's, it's hard to count because the white population in a lot of those countries is very, very small. They're countries run by black folks. But in places that are truly um, at least biracial countries, Cuba actually has the least inequality. And that's largely due to socialism, which I'm sure no one wants to hear. Yes, I think, as I understand it, uh, Cubans of every color are beaten and uh you know, they go without food and medical treatment. They, they're all treated equally, you know, regardless of color. And the, the rulers, the masters are, you know, what did she say? People of color? Like as though they're all good and uh, all other colors are in between are bad. It's just uh, ridiculous. And that's Nicole Hannah-Jones. And yet that's the madness with which our world is viewing a communism right now. What's happening in America is basically a communist takeover. And we're going to talk about that with our next guest, Jim Simpson is an economist, an investigative journalist. He's a businessman, a best-selling author. Uh, His columns have been published all over the place, Breitbart, Daily Caller, The Federalist. And uh, we will talk to him a little bit more about his background, but he's just written a new book called Who Was Karl Marx? The Men, the Motives, and the Menace Behind Today's Rampaging American Left. James, James, thanks for joining me this morning. We appreciate it so much. Hey, Sandy. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Great to have you, too. Now, you and I go back back a long way, and we remember Cuba well. Just I think we could share, you know, just our personal memories of, 
of Castro and of Cuba. But I want to ask you a question. On a scale of 1 to 10, how Marxist is Cuba? Well, it depends upon how you uh, define Marxist or communist. I define it in a very specific and particular way, which really isn't how most people consider Marxism or communist. Most people consider it as some kind of uh, <clears throat> high economic theory uh, that was peddled by a brilliant economist named Karl Marx. Now, Karl Marx was nothing of the sort. He didn't know the first thing about economics. He had never stepped foot once inside the doors of any factory. He knew nothing about the proletariat that he supposedly was going to free. And instead of uh, allowing the proletariat to uh, <clears throat> lose their chains, as it were, instead, every single communist country that ever adopted Marx's economic policies, and more correctly, his various strategies for absolute control, uh, all of those proletariats, and everybody else for that matter, went into chains that were harder, worse, and unlike anything anybody had ever done in history. Literally, the worst system ever invented by man. I call it the communism, the, the evolutionary endpoint to human depravity. And communists themselves, while they may <clears throat> fantasize um, bringing uh, utopia to the world and have you know heaven on earth based on their vast brilliance, despite any... Um, demonstration of such brilliance in the real world, uh, in fact, in practice, they care nothing about anything except absolute power, and most people don't say this, but the wealth that goes with it. And the Castro brothers were prime examples of that, but they're all the same. So the Castro brothers are always known, you know, for their, you know, their good looks. Let's just say the, that um, Fidel was known for his good looks, his kind of romantic uh, Latino machismo with his hat and his beard and his cigar. Uh, but, and for, for the left, he's such a hero. How can you make the point that he, that he enriched himself? Do we know anything about what, what did he own? Did he own a mansion? How, how, was, how was he enriching himself? Well, <laughs> as I explain in my book, just like Karl Marx, just like Mao Zedong, just like virtually every communist leader of, of every communist country, these people, they seize power, and then they begin the process of confiscating wealth and resources and income from everybody in the population. And, you know, the rationale is that they're going to redistribute it evenly across everybody in society so that everybody gets an equal amount. Except, <laughs> as you know, with governments everywhere, once they get a hold of all that money, uh, the fingers get really sticky. And somehow it never seems to go anywhere to the people that they claim it's going to. And then when the people realize 
how horrifically they've been had, and now they are living in a society that borders on starvation for most people a good part of the time, they want a revolt. But, of course, the communists have uh, predicted that because they knew what they were going to do all along, so they build a massive secret service with surveillance capability right down to the family unit so anybody even squeaks about protesting their leadership. Those people disappear in the middle of the night and are never seen again. Now, you know, in my book, I describe Cuba as having murdered between 35,000 and 141,000 people. Um, That's actually less than, you know, for example, the Soviet Union with 20 or 40 million, communist China with 65 to 80 million, Nazi Germany, another leftist uh, government, by the way, people need to think of it that way, 6 million, Vietnam, you know, and it's state-sponsored genocide for the specific purpose of control. And I don't believe those numbers actually represent how many people died under Castro's Cuba. You have to consider the who knows how many who died trying to get to Florida, who drowned in that 90-mile dangerous trip in rickety rafts and basically on pieces of wood. Um, And then we don't really know how many died in their prisons because they they don't keep honest statistics. But the Castro brothers were both spoiled brat, rich children of a plantation owner. And they were thrown out of college. Uh, They couldn't be uh, forced to work. But when they got this idea to overthrow Batista's Cuba, when Cuba was actually becoming one of the most prosperous nations in the world, and uh, as Reagan said, you know, a rising tide uh, lifts all boats. People in Cuba were prosperous, but the left could um, point out to some of uh, Batista's brutality towards <laughs> those same leftists who were trying to overthrow him, and of course they could uh, point to some corruption. So, but you know. Just because things are bad doesn't mean they can't get worse. They can you know, always get worse. Jim, I never, I, I did not know the Castro brothers were born into privilege like that. I had no idea. You know, it reminds me, and I don't want to get us onto this yet, uh, but the Weather Underground, again, that you and I are both familiar with, with Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers, you know, he was the the son of the, the CEO of Commonwealth Edison. Now, I'm from Chicago. Commonwealth Edison is our big a power company. It's a, the state's right. power company. It's huge. Right. And he'll, Bill right. Ayers, you know, became an outright, he still is. He's a grown-up right. communist now, spoiled brat, and his wife, the same thing. Uh, so many of these yep. radicals are children of privilege. That's what's so ironic about it, isn't it? Well, yes, but, you know, I actually go into that in depth. It actually makes a lot of sense, because when you think of those people, you know, when you think of these people, you see them in college, you see them around, and what's the one outstanding characteristic they all share? It's an almost mind-boggling conceit. 
Almost I was, was going to say smugness. I was going to say smugness, but that's a better word. Conceit, yes. Yeah, conceit, absolute, towering arrogance, and a sense of self-righteous privilege and entitlement that allows them to think, wow, well, I just consider this uh, world problem that nobody's been able to solve for centuries, but if I, uh, if I apply my brilliance to this problem, I could solve it in five minutes. So they all, you know, they're the grown-up version of the kids that sat around in college smoking pot and solving the problems of the world. It's kind of like, you know, that old bumper sticker, hire a teenager while he still knows everything, you know, <laughs> but they grow up and they still think they know everything. And Bill Ayers, of course, he was the son of Thomas Ayers, the CEO of Consolidated Edison, vastly wealthy, never had to lift a finger to work, had tons of money, and and was spoiled. So these sons of entitlement, and that's what the Castro brothers were. And when, uh, you know, I, I like to point out when I do presentations that, for example, in the Soviet Union, the members of the 12-member ruling Politburo talked about having these dachas in the country, these quote-unquote country cottages. And all of them were vast estates with dozens of servants and every, uh, you know, privilege they could imagine. They lived like kings. And the same was true with Castro. Castro, and I show a picture of it, Castro... Uh, Castro's home, he called the Fisherman's Cottage. And it's actually the former clubhouse for the most exclusive golf uh, course uh, in, in Cuba. And it's this palatial estate. We called it the Fisherman's Cottage. When he wow. died, he was worth a minimum of $900 million. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so that sort of quantifies it for us. My guest is Jim Simpson, and his book, his new book, is called Who Was Karl Marx? The Men, the Motives, and the Menace Behind Today's Rampaging American Left. And we'll talk about it more when we return with Jim. Fascinating. We're going to talk about who was Karl Marx, uh, his uh, compatriot Frederick Engels, and all the other people around around him, and, in, and then in current times that are avowed communists. And What's the difference between communism and socialism? Is socialism as, as innocent as some of the left would make us think? We'll talk about that with Jim when we return. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Workers in St. Petersburg scrubbed the statue of Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, better known as Lenin. Red birthday. But a century after the Russian Revolution he led, the stain of communism on the modern world remains indelible. Far from creating a worker's paradise, the philosophy of Karl Marx virtually everywhere it's been tried. In Havana, dictator Fidel Castro leads the Cuban May Day celebration. Has instead brought only totalitarianism and an estimated 100 million deaths. Lenin was the template not just for Stalin, but for Mao and for Pol Pot. Michael Oslin is the author of The End of the Asian Century. It is the godlessness, it's the lack of faith in anything superior to the state, anything otherworldly, and also the fact that there is no room for individual private property or, or markets. 
After they seized Petrograd in November 1917, Lenin's Bolsheviks executed Tsar Nicholas II and his family, and emigre from Moscow, Dmitry Stimes, is president of the Center for the National Interest. Because when the Bolsheviks took over, almost everybody assumed, except the Bolsheviks themselves, uh, that people so cruel, people so inexperienced, People so fanatical, they cannot stay in power for a long time. Well, they stayed in power from 1917 till the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. A non-aggression pact between Stalin's Russia and Hitler's Germany lasted three years. By 1942, Russia, the United States, Britain and France joined forces to defeat the Axis powers in World War II. In Moscow, the 44th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution gets underway. In the Cold War, the Soviet Union exported revolution. The rise of Mao Zedong in China gave the USSR its most important ally. Mao treats his visitor to a glimpse of Red China's military might. A parade of Soviet-supplied T-34 tanks. The decline, in retrospect, was slow but steady. President Nixon's visit to China exploited Sino-Soviet tensions and helped bring China into the modern world. Two books by Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich and the Gulag Archipelago, laid bare the brutality of the Soviet state. And at the Berlin Wall, President Reagan summoned the spirit of human freedom. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. All right, so that was a report done by James Rosen in 2017. It was just so good. I thought it would, it really gives you a great idea, an overview of communism, because I know a lot of people listening to this show uh, really don't have a grasp on it. And Jim, a lot of people, are, Jim Simpson is our guest. His book is Who Was Karl Marx? And we're going to talk about that in a second. A lot of people understand, they think, they understand that socialism is what's in Europe, and it's, uh, you know, pretty, it's good. They take care of poor people. Everyone has health care. Why wouldn't we want that? Make that distinction for us, please. Well, first of all, <laughs> we already have that here. So to say that it's uh, visible in, in Western Europe, but not here, is absolutely false. I mean, we have huge welfare programs here, and I would argue that those welfare programs have done more to keep minorities down, keep them poor, than it's done to increase, uh, you know, to reduce poverty. In fact, that's a statistical reality. For example, in Chicago, uh, an adult with two children, single adult with two children, earning $8.50 an hour flipping hamburger or something, or something, is entitled to welfare benefits equivalent to a salary of over $60,000. So now, why would a person like that ever want to try to risk going up the ladder when they can just collect all those benefits and just live from, you know, working a menial job? And so all of these adverse incentives are not considered Western Europe is not socialist. Western Europe is capitalist, but it has a very heavy um, uh, tax and redistribution policy, which suggests the idea that most people think of when they think of socialism. That socialism is the complete ownership of all the means of production by the government. That's what socialism is. So in none of those countries uh, does socialism exist. In fact, uh, 
uh, one of my favorite um, uh, comedians said that uh, in Sweden, uh, Sweden is is called good socialism, and uh, it's good socialism through the novel expedient of not practicing it. In many ways, (laughs) Sweden is more capitalist than the United States, although they don't really talk about that much. So those states really are not socialist. To be socialist is to have the full ownership of the means of production in the hands of the state. And socialism is a deliberate strategy by the communists. First of all, you know, it's the USSR, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, because Communism is a very bad word, and in fact, the term progressive was dreamed up by communists as far back as the 1920s, because after Lenin and his boys took over in the Soviet Union and began uh, their campaign of genocide, millions, tens of millions of the Russian people, uh, communism kind of got a tainted name, so they had to think up something else. And so they came up with, ah, we're progressive. And so socialist is the same idea. Oh, there's nothing the matter with socialism. We're just helping the poor, redistributing wealth, and keeping things fair and social justice and equality. But it's literally, it's a strategy that communists use to seize power. And then once that has become complete, they can move to communism. Some people said socialism is communism on the installment plan, but it really is a strategy to uh, mainstream communism into a country without people realizing that's what's happening. Would you say also, Jim, I don't know where the line is, but it's uh, communism always seems to manifest itself with a cult of personality. Someone uh, whether it's Kim Jong Il or or Mao or you know Marx or Stalin, yeah. and we came close to that with Barack Obama. I remembered those yeah. those creepy headshots of yeah. him, like in black and white and red, oh, yeah. and yeah, yeah. and the songs yeah. that were constructed that by, that were sung yeah. by school children. That's the only time that I know in my yeah. life we've ever had that in America. It's, it's absolutely it was absolutely creepy, and you know a lot of those. Uh, posters that his face was featured on recall the kind of, you know, Soviet workers posters that you saw in the 1920s with the workers. Yes. You know, yes. Yeah. It, it, so, and, and, and really it was done by an artist that does that kind of thing. So, um, yeah. So, yeah, so they and, tried and to do no that. Mistake either. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, all right. So, uh, let's jump right into the title of your book. Who was Karl Marx? So, uh, who was Karl Marx? I mean, he's the guy that, well, I don't really think he started all this, <laughs> because I think no. I seem to I seem to remember a serpent in the garden who said to the woman, um, "Are you sure that God didn't say you could have all the fruit?" And, and, and did He tell you that if you eat this, you'll be like God? I mean, isn't that kind of the essence yeah. of communism? That, really, that is, ab- that is absolutely, absolutely the essence. Absolutely, it goes right back to the Garden of Eden with. That biggest temptation of all, that temptation that ye shall be as gods. And you know, that kind of mindset is implicit, and maybe they don't realize it, but it's implicit in everybody that has an atheistic viewpoint. 
because they, they're not really getting rid of God. They're just uh, replacing God with themselves as the, you know, uh, as the um, creative intelligence of the world. Whitaker Chambers pointed it out in his famous book, Witness, you know, communist turn whistleblower. He said, it's the great alternative faith of mankind. Like all faiths, it's forced to derive from a simple vision. Other agents, ages have had great visions. They've always been a different version of the same vision, the vision of God and man's relationship to God. The communist vision is the vision of man without God. It is the vision of man's mind displacing God as the creative intelligence of the world. And Karl Marx himself was not an atheist. He was actually raised um, as a Christian, despite his Jewish heritage. And in high school, he wrote beautiful Christian poetry. It was really quite remarkable. But then, like so many kids, he went off to college and got radicalized. And one of his most noteworthy poems, he talks about destroying the world and he says, then I will wander godlike and victorious through the ruins of the world and giving my words an active force, I will feel equal to the Creator. And there it is, right there. These people are megalomaniacs. They, it, it, it's a pathological level of pride and arrogance that uh, describes the temptation in the Garden of Eden. And that's why I say right in the beginning of the book, right in the introduction, when I make four major points about this entire agenda, that at its heart, it is satanic. Well, it is satanic. And you know, one person that helped us make that case, because people who are not uh, necessarily, they may believe and have some faith in the Bible to some extent, but not all the extreme parts like Satan. Uh, when we see Sololinsky dedicating his book Rules for Radicals yeah. to the First Great Rebel, yeah. Satan. You know, it's pretty, pretty blatant. Lucifer, yeah. Lucifer, yep. yeah. Uh, and I want to read this. You have this in your book. This is what—we'll uh, get to Ingalls in just a second. He was the Marxist sure. companion. And his yeah. first impressions of Marx, you write this. This is what Ingalls says. He does not walk or run. He jumps on his heels and rages, full of anger, as if he would like to catch the wide tent of the sky and throw it to the earth. He stretches his arms far away in the air. The wicked fist is clenched. He rages without ceasing, as if 10,000 devils had caught him by the hair. What a strange yeah. observation from someone who was supposed to be his friend, who spent so much time with him, who gave him so much money. Why would you hang around with someone about, about which you would say this? Seriously. Well, you know, well, and, and, and even more than that, all of the people around him made that observation. Uh, another one uh, who I quote in the book, Giuseppe Mazzini, uh, who was another communist, said he is a destructive spirit whose heart was filled with hatred rather than love of mankind. Despite the communist egalitarianism which Marx preaches, he's the absolute ruler of his party and he tolerates no opposition. And Mikhail Bakunin, who was probably the most famous anarchist of the day, said of Marx, one has to worship him in order to be loved by him, one has at least to fear him in order to be tolerated by him. Marx is 
extremely proud up to dirt and madness. <laughs> I want to repeat that. Uh, Marx is extremely proud up to dirt and madness. In fact, let's talk about this. Yep. I have talked about Marx recently with another of our friends who writes about him and found uh, incredible things, and I want you to address it. His personal life, his personal habits, as briefly as he can so we can do other things, but describe Marx, how he lived. Well, Marx is the template for all subsequent communists. He was the son of a fabulously wealthy uh, attorney who showered him with an allowance that was greater than what 95% of Germany's population earned at the time. Uh, But he squandered it, and later in life he hovered over ailing relatives like a vulture, waiting for them to die so he could learn what he was going to get in their inheritance, and he wrote about all this to um, Engels, and it's just shocking. He was essentially his entire shtick. He was a megalomaniac, maniacal egotist, utterly selfish, absolutely selfish, hated everybody, and cared for nobody. And everything in his life reflects that. Two of his daughters and one son-in-law committed suicide. Three of his children starved to death. And yet, while his wife was running around trying to raise enough money to buy a coffin for one of their children, he employed this libidinous, useless secretary because he claimed it was important for a man of his stature to keep up appearances. This is the kind of person he was. His entire life, he pilfered off of Engels, who was also the wealthy son of a British industrialist, and Engels stole money out of the company's petty cash to send to Mark. And that was Mark's main source of income when he wasn't getting something from dead relatives through a... uh, Wow. Well, Jim, we have to take a break here, but uh, Jim Simpson is my guest. The book is called Who Was Karl Marx? You just heard. You got an earful of who was Karl Marx, the kind that you won't hear from the left. They'll they'll have this... this, There's one portrait of him, I guess the one time he bathed. As I understand it, he never bathed. He had boils all over him. He was just a wretched character. Ah, but that's a great portrait, and that's who you get to see him as, but that's not who he really was. We've just really scratched the surface of this book, so stay tuned, because we need to talk about the effect of Marx on our our lives now and in this country now. This is Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook, or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. A good friend, Trevor Loudon, says of this book, Who Was Karl Marx by James Simpson, this is the best book I have read on revolution and counter-revolution in recent memory. Mr. Simpson lays out in simple but dramatic terms the history of communism from Marx to the present and then tells us how to combat it. Well-written, timely, and brutally honest, Who Was Karl Marx is the most important book for patriots in many years. Bravo. 
Mr. Simpson. That's high praise coming from Trevor, who's an expert on international communism himself. Alan West says constitutional conservatives can't fight an ideological war without knowing the author of the ideology they confront. Jim Simpson delves into the essence of Karl Marx, providing a fundamental exigency enabling the conservative movement to defeat this malevolent philosophy that's the antithesis of our constitutional republic. And there's more to say, but those are some of the comments about Jim Simpson's new book, Who Was Karl Marx? The Men, the Motives, and the Menace Behind Today's Rampaging American Left. Uh, Jim, you talk about so many things in here. We won't probably get to Engels, uh, but Vladimir Lenin and his strategy of hate. You talk about the Frankfurt School, critical race theory. Uh, white privilege, uh, all this stuff. I think one thing that I get a lot, and, and as I was reading your your or forward, your or your opening introduction, people ask me, "Well, what's the point? What are they trying to do?" And I always say, because I'm I sit at the feet of you guys who are experts, uh, is that they are trying to destroy. They are trying to destroy this country. They're trying to destroy everything. And that then I get puzzled responses like, "Well, why would they do that?" So. Jim, why would they do that? Because it's the greatest way to insert yourself into power. It's a basically a divide-and-conquer strategy. And as I say in the beginning of the book, it is an asymmetric strategy of military conquest that has been conducted by the international communist movement for over 100 years and has only really become blatantly visible today because they've completely come out of the closet to show who they are and what they are, because they think that this is the chance, their chance to do so. And if we don't stop this in the next couple of years, uh, it's going to be too late, and we will suffer the same fate that other nations that have fallen under its uh, spell will suffer. And in fact, we will suffer more, because we have always been the main enemy and of all the enemies, their ardor to destroy us has never, has always been the greatest, and today it has never been greater. And all of the early communists said our goal is the destruction, and they said it over and over and over again. Marx said it, uh, Engels said it, all of their followers at the time said it, and then carried down to the present time. They all say it. The Black Lives Matter uh, leaders say it. Nalini Stamp, who came up with the hands up, don't shoot slogan. She was an Occupy Wall Street street organizer. Before that, she worked for an ACORN affiliate, a radical communist anarchist for an entire life. And Black Lives Matter is the perfect vehicle for them to promote this divisive strategy. She said, our real goal is to destroy capitalism because it's just not working for us. And that's that. Of course, that's the common theme. That that reminds me of Mao's China. And I was just reading a book recently about a Chinese uh, uh, industrial family built from the father's Mm -hmm. success, I think, in the silk trade. Mm -hmm. And uh, when the revolution came, they had quite just an incredible enterprise. Can't remember the name of the family, uh, but the communists, yep. of course, led by Mao, came in and just they. In com, in correct me if I'm wrong, Jim. In communist China, it wasn't they didn't divide on the basis of race. 
they divided on the basis of economic achievement. So people who had money sure. and wealth were yeah. the hated ones. Yeah. They were the hated yeah. ones. Yeah. So well, this this family was you know, decimated. Well, of course. I mean, China is very, um, you know, there aren't a lot of different races in China. There aren't a lot of different uh, fracture lines in the, among the Chinese people. They all pretty much share a common uh, heritage and really very uh, quite a remarkable history. Um, so anywhere it's practiced, communists examine the country under a microscope and decide what the most um, advantageous fault lines are for them to exploit. And of course, you know, our history of slavery is a great way of finding fault lines, but they don't stop there. They put straight against, you know, gay, they created the LGBTQ movement, and now that's not good enough, so they split that movement into transgenders, and then they're going to split it again into uh, supporting pedophilia as an alternative lifestyle, and this will actually create uh, conflicts within the entire LGBTQ movement because a lot of people think that's just crazy. Um, and and then against the greater society, they place the elderly and retired against uh, working people uh, through the Social Security program. Uh, they You just name it, every single uh, fracture in society they can exploit, they exploit it. And the one that now is you know, getting all the headlines, of course, is the racial fault lines with Black Lives Matter, Antifa protests following the uh, accidental, not murder, the accidental death of George Floyd, and then the deaths of some other uh, young black men at the hands of police, and in most cases, uh, literally, the police were following procedures in... uh, going after those people, and they were just unfortunate that they were killed in the process, but many more police <laughs> killed by blacks, actually, over the past number of years. In fact, 40% of all uh, felonious deaths of police are committed by blacks, even though they only represent 13% of the population, over 50% of all murders are committed by blacks, even though they don't represent 13% of the population. Blacks kill twice as many whites, more than twice as many whites every year, and vice versa. And so the uh, cautious approach to criminals in the black community is entirely warranted and justified. It has nothing to do with racism. It has to do with the statistical reality of the variance in uh, crime rates between different groups. And I would argue that even that has been manufactured by the left because the left has deliberately held down black communities in inner cities and literally willfully destroyed them and at the same time indoctrinated black kids in inner city schools to believe it's all whitey's fault. Yep. You know, uh, let me just, allow me to just say, this is the way I understand it, Jim. The whole idea of destruction and deconstruction, uh, to turn people against each other, to create division everywhere, and to destroy any kind of affiliation that gives 
people a sense of identity, whether it's their family. I remember telling yeah. my husband uh, probably 10 years ago, I think it was 10 years ago, I said, honey, they're going to come after the NFL football because it's too much yep. of a brotherhood. You guys, it's yep. too much of a brotherhood. You enjoy it. It's too powerful. It gives yep. you an identity. Yep. And at the time, I know yep. he thought, you know, I was a little crazy. And I don't even uh-huh. need to explain what's happened. But that's what they do. They right. can't allow anything to stand, whether it's the church or no. football or family. No. It has to all be destroyed so that, the, no. so that the state can be God. And, you know, I <clears throat> quote one of the most um, notorious and most important radicals that nobody heard of. Almost nobody knows. And I have gone all over the country speaking about this, and every time I ask people to raise their hands if they've heard of this person, and at most in a, you know audience of 200 to 500 people, I might get one person raising their hand. And this guy in 1869 wrote something called the Revolutionary Catechism. And The Revolutionary Catechism says that the revolutionaries have no aim other than the complete liberation and happiness of the masses, that is, of the people who live by manual labor. Convinced, however, that their emancipation and the achievement of that happiness can only come about as a result of an all-destroying popular revolt Revolutionaries will use all their resources and energy toward increasing and intensifying the evils and miseries of the people until at last their patience is exhausted and they are driven to a general uprising. The idea is to create so much hatred, so much panic, so much uncertainty and just relentlessly pound away at this, denying people any source of relaxation, happiness, peace, or security, people will driven to the point where they themselves will create the revolution, providing the pretext for the state to come in and clamp down on them. Wow, Jim, that's profound. Now, that's profound. That's what's happening. I know you're going to say that. Yeah. So this is my question yeah. to you because we only have a couple of minutes mm-hmm. left. What's the yeah. antidote to this? What is the antidote? What, what, what can we do to counter this? Well, the largest chapter in my book devotes itself to just that question. Because, you know, we, we all get readings and lectures and podcasts and everything telling us about how terrible it is, why it's terrible and where it's terrible and what's happening here, there, and everywhere. And all it does is demoralize us further. So I decided that the most important chapter that I would make to this book uh, is the last one, and it's titled Back from the Brink, A Comprehensive Plan to Save America. And this is the longest chapter, and it is I'm sure not complete. People will come up with a whole bunch of different ideas. And in fact, some have suggested some since I published this that I didn't think of. But it is a very extensive list. And okay, give, idea, us, give us a few ideas. Yeah, give us a few ideas before we run out of time. Okay. So 
what is happening in school boards all over the country. The one thing that we can rely on the left to do is overplay its hand, and they have done that yet again. They have now showed us more than any other time just how radical, how extreme, how hateful, and how dangerous they are and what they are doing to our most precious commodity, our children. And so across the country, school boards are being taken over, they're being challenged by people like you and me who just realize what's happening and they are going to make a change. We have to make all kinds of changes. We have to provide attractive alternatives. And with those attractive alternatives, people will vote en masse with their feet as they are already demonstrating by flooding uh, states like Florida and uh, Texas to escape the extreme lunacy of the leadership in California and New York, New Jersey, and other leftist-run uh, states and cities. And that's the kind of thing we have to do. And if we can do that, elect enough people who understand and who are willing to create those kinds of policies that really uh, reflect our nation and its values, we will attract everybody and the left will die on the vine. But it's something that we're all going to have to work on. And the most important goal right now is for us to win back Congress in 2022 and as many state houses and local governments as we possibly can. So everybody has to be attuned to that. So, so it's. I agree with you. It is not too late. I, I do see people fighting back. That's so encouraging to me. Plus, plus, I will add, and I know that you agree, uh, that we have an incredible God, and uh, people of God need to rise up because that's a power much greater than anything Marx tried to conjure up. He was just a, he was just a very poor, self-appointed imitation of an almighty God, yep. and he is not almighty God, so it's, it's time to fight back. The book is called, Who Was Karl Marx? The Men, the Motives, and the Menace Behind Today's Rampaging American Left. It's a bestseller, by the way, in print and in Kindle. And so uh, pick it up, buy it, and you will enjoy it and learn a great deal, a lot more than we had a chance to share with you. Jim Simpson, thank you so much for your time. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk.